bop, 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 boom, Welcome to the show. Hey, uh, so thank you for listening. I've been inconsistent lately. This is coming at you live. The Madness Continues podcast coming at you live from from uh, Austin, Texas, actually, is where this is coming at you live from. Austin, Texas. I'm here. I'm hanging out. I'm uh, I'm quiet for some reason on this uh on this microphone, I don't know why. Anyway, I'm I'm here chilling out with uh, some friends. I'm visiting. It's COVID. You know what I mean. Nobody needs to be anywhere. Nothing needs to be happening. No person is based anywhere. It's uh, it's uh, the world is upside down. I'm um, I've just been I've just been taking a little time for me, uh, traveling around a little bit, guys. I'm sorry that I haven't been. If you're a uh, if you're a um, an avid listener, then you don't exist. Uh. <laughs> You know, eventually I want audience members that are materialized. You know, I want existing audience members that have a place. You know what I mean? You have to exist somewhere. You know what I mean? You have to be a place. You have to have some material form. Maybe maybe, maybe this is the number one podcast listened to by angels. I don't know that. I don't know how you'd query angels. I don't really know where you would go to, <laughs> to figure out <laughs> what angels are listening to your podcast. I should go to a pre... I should pay... A number of priests, as you get together, a multi-religious, trans-religious, cross-religious group of people. You know what I mean? Buddhist. I I need a I need a Buddhist monk. I need an imam. I need a I need a rabbi. I need a Catholic priest. I need a Christian minister from a you know Protestant religion. I need to sit them all down. I need a Sikh. Uh, I don't even know what the proper term for a Sikh. Uh, you know, ministers, and he sent them all down. I need to have them read the signs, pray, and figure out which podcast is the most listened to by angels, and uh, and it's going to be this one. <laughs> if you pay them enough money, they're going to decide that it's this one. Uh, and you know how I know that because all that money is going to go to a good cause, which is their pockets, probably. So hey, listen. Uh, thank you guys for listening to this. I'm in Austin, Texas. I'm chilling out. I'm trying to get some perspective on life. Gone through a breakup um, with my lovely, amazing para ex girlfriend. Uh, she's fantastic. We're figuring it out. COVID is hard on everybody, and uh, I'm trying to figure out what's next. You know, I'm trying to figure out what I'm doing. I have this day job. I'm I've, I'm so thankful I have it. Many people I know are unemployed, but uh, it's not me in many ways recognizing I don't really know how to do comedy, even though I've done it for 20 years. Don't really know how to podcast, even though I've done it for three years. Uh, don't really know anything about anything. You know what I mean? Don't know much about history. Don't know much about geometry. Don't know much about science books. Don't know much about the French I took. Uh, en fait, je sais un petit peu à sujet de français. Un petit peu. But not because I took it in high school, because I lived there... And I was trying to fuck French girls. That's exactly what was happening. Look, it's three and a half minutes in this podcast, and if you're still listening, then you are a fucking champion. I love you. I love you so much. I want to hear what you're doing, actually. This is not a joke. This is not me goofing around. This is uh, this is a real-ass thing that I'm telling you about right now that I actually wish was... I wish I knew you. I wish I knew what you were doing, what you were talking about, what was happening with you, what was going on in your head where you're at. Message me back. Comment on this podcast. I'm really serious about it. 
Today, uh, we're going to listen to... I'm going to have a bunch of these coming out recently, and I'm actually going to be doing more of these rants. Uh, this is my new mental health. I can't really afford therapy. So, <laughs> just like just like Mark Marin, I think you're going to get an injection of these thoughts right into your brain if you tune into them. If you tune into them. You, you too, can be codependent in this relationship uh, of, 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 uh, of conspiratorial correspondence. Nobody has to know. Nobody has to know. But you can comment. You can, you can put it on the thread. I'm here in Austin, Texas, hanging out on Riverside. Uh, went out to Quickie Picky. If you're in Austin, Texas, you need to go to Quickie Picky. Pick up a beer, get a street taco, and you, t- you tip. You tip those motherfuckers so much money because they are working their asses off. And let me tell you, they deserve it. I have never been... I might hang out with Quickie Picky every day in Austin, Texas. I might hang out there every day. I will high-five every hipster wearing long pants in 80-degree weather, okay? Long pants, tucked-in t-shirt. It is 85 degrees out with those tuxedo slippers you're wearing, buddy. That's Texas heat magic. If there's one thing that I know about Texans, it's that they got some kind of crazy heat magic. And they like to drink, but not as much as people from the north. I think that they got this weird sense of they're like, yeah, man, Texas, let me tell you something about Texas. Everything's great in Texas. We drink here. We like Lone Star. We like Shinerbach. Let me tell you something. We're we going to go get some drinks here in Texas. But uh, every woman I've ever met in the UP of Michigan could outdrink every Texan I've met so far down in Austin. Now, let me caveat that. A lot of people I know in, te- in Austin, Texas are going to say, well, Austin ain't Texas. Austin ain't Texas. Not by a long sight, Austin ain't Texas. Okay, what's well, the capital of your state? So I think you should calm down a little bit and just try to understand that if I was in Michigan and I was like, oh, Lansing, Lansing, Michigan, you know where the entire government sits? That's not really Michigan. That's a problem. It's a real problem. It's a problem with perspective. It's a problem with history. By the way, I don't know if you know this, but one of the six seals of Texas is actually the Confederate seal from the Confederate States of America. What the fuck? <laughs> it's just, I mean, be proud and own your history, but there's a part of me that's like, mm, eh. that's like, that's like the, the, that's like the, the Capitol building in uh, Berlin, Germany is like, oh yeah, by the way, there's the swastika because we were actually Nazis. <laughs> what? Uh, well. This has been some great ejaculations from my mind. Just one second, folks. One second here while I get set up for introducing our podcast today. Oh, Nelly. That's some Austin East, original Austin East Sider, Dry Sider, getting to me by, by Zachary, my roommate here in uh, Austin, Texas, here on Riverside. Listen, thank you so much for tuning in. Today, the podcast, we got Doug Fletcher. I got some other people coming up. I got a bunch in the in the, in the the bag. Doug, I've been, I'm sorry this took too long. Thank you for being patient. Doug is one of the most interesting dudes I know. He's got a consulting business. He's got a book that he's published, uh, which is a fantastic book. And he's a fantastic guy. He's so friendly. And he's sent me a copy of his book. He sent me, honestly, man, he sent me a fucking notebook. Like, with, with to, to, he just was like, hey, I know you got a lot of great thoughts, Brendan. Just record them here. Listen, I apologize, Doug, if you're pushing this podcast and you came here because Doug Fletcher um, pushed you this direction and you've heard me curse a couple of times. All I am saying is that he is an amazing man and I feel overwhelmed at his amazingness, so much so that it it breaks the boundaries of civility within myself. Um, I really enjoyed talking with him, actually, and I, 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 the thing that I loved about him is that he's a dude who's off the beaten path, 
in a in a otherwise well trod corporate world, he's a guy who's off the beaten path a little bit, and he does it with a lot of charm and a lot of honestly a lot of class. He's a classy gentleman. If I uh, th- somebody said to me recently, they were like, "If you could die and someone described your entire life in one adjective, what would it be?" And uh, my first answer was delightful, which I think would be great. But I think classy would be a second good one, and Doug is uh, definitely that. So I just want to say thank you for being patient as I attempted to figure things out in my life and go through uh, whatever madness I was going through in order to release this. But also, thank you for sending me a copy of your book. You guys should go check it out. It will be in the show notes. We talk about it on this podcast very much. And he is out touring the country right now in his little tiny house driving around. Uh, What a wonderful man. You can get at him in plenty of locations. Uh, Thank you for listening to this rambling intro. That was, you know, I'm going to be honest with you, therapeutic. If you're ever sitting there thinking to yourself, how, what, why do do I go to... Uh, you know, do I go to betterhelp.com? Do I go to a person in my town to talk with, even though I can't do that because it's, uh, you know, COVID and we can't be in the same room? The answer to your question is uh, just get on a podcast with a microphone and you go off the top of your dome, honey. I'll take you in tight. I'll whisper in your ear. You have permission. You have permission to say your truth. And then you go. You know, you message me directly. We'll put you on this podcast, and then you too can be as famous as me. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, please give it up for my lovely guest, the wonderful Doug Fletcher. Thanks so much. Doug, Doug Fletcher, uh author of how clients buy a successful uh successful entrepreneur consultant author uh i think you you get any other things i'm missing here (laughs) university Uh, professor university professor avid outdoorsman (laughs) (laughs) soon to be a tiny house uh liver (laughs) yes the the van life is about to uh begin I just had a conversation with a cousin of mine. I think you and I were talking about this last time, but he um, he's about to get into van life, and he's like really excited about it. I think that I think you're about to jump into a community of a ton of really awesome people uh, who, um, you know, you're gonna. I feel like your network is gonna become even better, <laughs> hanging oh, out with other van people. Yeah. Well, you know, it travels, travels wonderful. And, um, you know, uh, you know, I love to travel internationally you know, that's, that's not really happening now, but, um, you know, I've also, you know, I love to travel in our own country, you know, here in the U S and, um, you know, sometimes, you know, we, we, we take off to the four corners of the world to, you know, explore. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of amazing stuff right here in our own country and I haven't seen, you know, most of it. So, um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And, and you do meet a lot of cool people along the way. Do you have a, do you have like a, I'm curious, do you have like a list of places you're going to go to first? And I should let everybody know you're out of, uh, are you, you're out of, Montana right now or are you out of yeah okay, got that's it. 
Yeah, yeah. I've lived I, I've lived in um, in Bozeman, Montana, for about the last 25 years. So this has been my home base for uh, for a long time. Yeah. Um, I've never been up to Bozeman, man, and I wish I should go because there's a uh, some some really good co- comedy and comedy shows that have been going out there. And mm. we talked about this a little bit last time, but um, I I really like that area. It's funny because I just to digress for a second. I've been having a lot of fun during the pandemic going on to uh going on google map adventures have you have you ever done this before no tell me about it oh man so this is uh this is i think this is exciting uh everybody in my life who i tell about this thinks this is like the dumbest (laughs) most ridiculous like thing to do and i have to admit that there's maybe some truth to that um in terms of it being ridiculous but it's where you go to some corner of the world on google maps and then you grab the little guy, the street view guy, and then you just drop him down to like look at what the street view is on any given situation. So right now, I just drop down. I'm doing this on a on a panel on my screen. I just drop down to 101 Ketchner Street in Denton, Montana, and I'm looking around at what's what's around there. <laughs> like I just oh, I do this so well, often when I have nothing going on for like five minutes, and it's actually a lot of fun. That is cool. I'm going to have to I'm going to have to do that. Well, listen, I have been to Denton and you're one of not many people that have ever been there. Let me just tell you. So uh, <laughs> so, yes. Yeah, so, so take it in. It's it's quite quite the place. It looks like Denton's Denton's got a city park. Uh, it's got a central Montana rail station and the Shade Tree Cafe. If you're driving through Denton on mt81 you could stop and get some coffee at the shade tree cafe (laughs) that's 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 about it no you know the big thing that happens in denton is they they you know in the before times they have this annual softball tournament there and the population goes from like 50 people to 5,000 for the weekend and it's total mayhem but um, i've never been but that's about the highlight for denton uh, well, I'm, it's, uh, it's, you know, how, and how, see, this is why I like it because how would I have ever known anything about Denton and why would I have ever learned about Denton, Montana ever if I hadn't? Never, never. Yeah. No, I wouldn't. Yes. And the fact that you even know that much about it is kind of nuts. <laughs> it's, it's pretty crazy. No. Um, yeah. So, uh, well, you'll have to get out here to Montana if you ever do. Um, you know, I'd love to see you live, um, you know, with, with your comedy performance and, um, Gosh, let's hope we get back to live entertainment, you know, sooner rather than later, because I live about um, four blocks from a really good music venue called the Rialto Theater. And it's not huge. It's a, it, it'd be perfect for comedy. It's about, I don't know, maybe 400 people capacity. It's got a downstairs main level and then it's got a mezzanine above. But, man, it's just perfect for live music. Um and live comedy and shows like that. And, you know, I used to go weekly. Um, it was awesome. You could go get a ticket for like 20 bucks and you, you just see some of the most amazing performers and, you know, we can't do that now. And I really, I really miss that. Oh man. It's so sad. Yeah. You're telling me the, uh, the, I miss getting in front of audiences. I've been doing some live stream stuff. Obviously I keep doing the podcast, but it's just a different being in front of some live people is, is I miss the juice. And I mean, you're a speaker. You you've done, uh, you know, keynote speeches, different speeches. You talk to people who are trying to grow their consulting businesses. Um, I mean, how, how how often were you giving public public talks before the uh, the, the arrival of coronavirus? 
Yeah, well, I well, first of all, you know, I'm in the classroom every week. I teach I teach at our local university, oh, that's Montana right. State. Yeah, Montana I keep forgetting State. that so, you are you are a serious. Yeah, you are a professor, sir. Well, it's yeah, it's kind of my it's kind of my third, maybe fourth career, but um, uh, but so I was you know I was in front of the classroom every week and um and and you know so that's small audiences and then you know probably. You know, once a month I was, you know, hopping on a plane and going speaking to a larger audience. And clearly that's gone away, um, you know, in the last three, four months. Um, and it's all like online now, you know, I'm doing, you know, probably monthly I'm speaking to a group of anywhere from, you know, 20 to 100 people. But, you know, to your point, you <laughs> we talked about this last week. We, uh, you know, when you're when you're in your home and you're you're on Zoom or Teams or whatever, um, you know, you can't see the audience. And so you, you don't know if like you're nailing it or it's awful and, or you're totally, yeah. And, and add to that, (laughs) the fact that if you're doing comedy, you need to, you, in order to feel reassured you're doing well, you need to hear a laugh every like 12 to 15 seconds. Like if you take away those laughs, suddenly like all of your warning signs are going off where you're like, I'm fucking up, I'm fucking up, I'm fucking up. Like, (laughs) like left, left and right. Oh man! Yeah, you know, you know, I, I, um, I haven't been to one of these yet. But have, have you been following this kind of this thing that's been going on this spring for live music, where they've had these drive-in concerts? Oh yeah, yeah, I've heard, I've heard a bit about this. Yeah, well, I haven't been to one, but one of my bands, uh, one of my bands is having one tomorrow night. They're like somewhere, you know, on the East Coast, and um, I was thinking about doing it. You could, you know, you can drive in or you could you can stream in, but um, but you know, I can imagine for a band, um, you know, playing to people in cars could be kind of weird. But um, but you know, it, it, at least you're on a stage and there's people out there. But yeah, it's I, I hope we get back to to live performances soon. Um, you know, I. I think that's uh, that's probably the thing I miss the most, maybe you know, during these times. I I, I miss. I feel like the just the the this is interesting because we didn't. I mean, there's no you know there's no script for this conversation, and I, I guess I didn't really expect to get into it. But it's funny because I um you know I'm talking to you now from uh, Northwest Lower Michigan. I came up here to visit some family, and I aside from seeing my parents. I don't think I've seen like another human being <laughs> right. in like months. Like I've barely seen any friends. I had a, I had a call with a friend of mine, a FaceTime call, you know? And yeah. I think I, I, it's so weird because I was talking to him and he just bought a uh, place in New York and um, really excited for him. Wanted to congratulate him uh, on that. And I was like, you know, I'll probably be out to visit him in a while. We're going to end up going on this um, uh, kind of a marketing push for the book that I have that's coming out next month, um, which I'm excited about. And and the he's the co-author of that book. So I'm going to go, you know, do a bunch of podcasts with him in New York at some point. But I hadn't seen him in like, like I hadn't actually seen him. And because we did a FaceTime like on the phone. I hadn't seen him in like months. And then the last time when I was talking to him, I'm like, when's the last time I actually like we were in person together? And he was like, oh, probably like December. And like, it's just funny to think about that. Like he just, you know, it's been months and you don't even, you don't even, you're, you start forgetting even how 
often you were around other people, you know, like yeah, that, the yeah. missing of the, the, you know, it's almost like you, you stopped missing it only because the, that part of your body just became numb. Cause you're like, well, there's nobody around. So, um, yeah, yeah. Well, I, um, yeah, you know, I, um, I certainly miss my friends, but the thing that, you know, the thing I miss the things I was doing with my friends. And so, um, you know, live events, whether it's, you know, music or comedy or, you know, movies or I guess movies wouldn't be live, but you know what I'm saying? I'm like public gatherings. Um, yeah, I miss my friends. Um, you know, and I talk to them often and I see a couple, a few of them, you know, still today, you know, live, but, um, but I miss the things we did together. And many of those things have just gone away. So like, you know, I love going out to a good restaurant, but you know, hell, I, I cook good food at home. So like I, I miss, you know, the meals with friends. I don't miss the restaurant per se. Um, yeah, this uh, kind of like the social connection environment yeah, of yeah. being able to, I think, and this actually, this actually maybe is a decent way to inroad to speaking about some of the ideas you put forward in your book. Um, but the, the ability, what I also miss is I couldn't really, aside from you and I think a small handful of other people, I would be hard pressed to name new connections I've made during the pandemic. Mm. And I think that's kind of what I miss is like, I'm a big time. I love meeting people. I love meeting new people. I love trying to figure out what, you know, what is, what do we have in common? What do you got going on? What's new in your world? What's exciting? What are things I don't know about that I can learn from you? And what, 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 what things can I help you with that you're working on that is exciting to me, all that stuff. And that's a lot more, you have to be a lot more deliberate about that during the pandemic than I think Mm. I've ever had to be at any other time in my life. Like I, you know, New York is a good example. Like I went to a Christmas party at a friend's place in New York and met some, some serious potential, potential movers and shakers who were just at the party and I didn't even know who they were started talking to them. And then after 20 minutes of talking, I was like, by the way, what do you do? And they're like, Oh yeah, I'm the author of like eight books. And one of you know, two of them are New York best <laughs> times, bestsellers. And I was like, Oh shit. Like, <laughs> but, but now, you know, in the pandemic, it's right, like, I have right. to, I have to, I have to call those shots and then take those shots and so I don't know. That's interesting because you talk a bit in the book about uh, about how networking is important to building sort of a consulting business, and that there's there's really no there's really no substitute for kind of having a good network that you've cultivated over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you um, you bring up an excellent point, um, Brendan, and that is. Uh, you know, meeting people now, to your point, is just so deliberate, and um, and you know, it, it it's you know, it's premeditated, and you know, so like you know, through your friend Joy in D.C., you learned about me, and we connected, but um, you know, the 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 random kind of serendipitous meeting. Um, People, you know, has largely gone away, um, at least, you know, for the time being. And um, and and oftentimes um, those are some of the best people we meet, you know, just like like you mentioned in New York, you go to this you go to this cool event and, you know, you know, two people there, but there's, you know, 200 people there. And, you know, by the end of the night, you've made like five new friends that, 
you had a lot in common with that you didn't even know were going to be there and didn't even know who they were. And, you know, that, to your point, I think that that element has gone away um, mm. for the time for the time being. You know, what I've noticed um, is that, you know, when the when the when the pandemic first happened and, and I'm speaking strictly from a business standpoint here, um, you know, meeting people and relationships, which is really the the essence of of business development and consulting and, and things like that. Um, you know, it's relationships. And I found that when the pandemic happened, you know, let's say when everything kind of went to lockdown back in mid-March, um, I think people for like the first 30 days, maybe even 60 days, were just kind of in shell shock mode. They were just like, you know, everybody's working from home and just trying to figure out their new life and what this all meant. And I don't think they were really that open to making new relationships. They were kind of almost like in survival mode, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think what I've experienced over like the last 60 days has been this discovery that, you know, uh, it's made us better, I think, at meeting people online through Zoom and, and, and things like that than we ever were before. And not to yep. say that it will ever replace like meeting people in public, um, you know, meeting people, you know, in person. But I, I was terrible at video chats before the pandemic. And now it's like, well, this is just what you do. And so I've met new clients. I've met you know, people. And, and I think we're just, we realize that we can't just stop interacting with people for the next 12 or 18 months or however long this lasts. We were just, I think we've adapted to the new world we're in. And so I think Zoom chats are, are, you know, are becoming more like just something we do. I think it's, yeah, it's become like a normal part of culture and it's going to be interesting to see what happens after this, like after the pandemic, because there's like a real, I think there's a lot of business. I mean, one, I think that there's some permanent demographic movement. Like this Mm. is a whole other conversation, but you know, I read an article in the New Yorker that said something like, I don't know, 7.5% of all New Yorkers moved out of the city. Mm. And, and, Mm -hmm. And if you calculate that to the Island of Manhattan specifically, that's like, I don't know, like almost 400,000 people or something. Right, Like nearly half a million people just on the island of Manhattan have moved out. That's bigger than most Midwest towns. I mean, that's huge. (laughs) That's a giant Midwest town. I can can totally imagine. I mean, like I love New York and, you know, I travel to New York often uh, or did. Um, The last time I was there was in February. And um, and, uh, yeah, and, you know, part of New York's, you know, greatness is its energy level. And I heard you discussing this with one of your friends on, on a recent podcast, just there's, there's no other place like it for just the overall energy level. Well, that energy level comes from the people and, and, you know, they were, uh, you know, with, to your point with people not there, you'd be curious to like go to New York now and just spend a week there and see what it was like. Yeah, just to ch- just chill out and see see if it even yeah. yeah how neurotic or not is it? That's one of the things. Is this, maybe yeah. it's quieted down to the point that you could like you can actually you know get some sleep in that city. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I uh, uh, 
I, I was listening to a podcast yesterday. I'm trying to think which one it was. Um, no, it wasn't podcast. It was it was uh, it was Bloomberg Radio and Sirius XM. But um, anyway, they were saying that because so many people have left the city, Manhattan, and the people, you know, the affluent that have homes um, in the Hamptons, they've they've moved there, and they've just decided to stay there and put their kids in school there, and the and the public schools. The population has just exploded to the point where they can't accommodate it. Yep. It's crazy. This sounds about right. Like a lot of the, so I don't know a ton of people who have, you know, I have a second home in the Hamptons kind of money. Right, but, right. Yeah. Or do I? But the, the small number of them that I do know have done that exact move where they're like, nah, yeah. I'm going to stay in Connecticut slash Long Island slash, you know, whatever, the up, up, up in the Hudson Valley. And yeah, it's just like there's a whole bunch that I, I wouldn't be surprised to see what's going to happen in the city of New York specifically. But I just think you're right. Like there's just a, you know, there's just a move like the world of business and work has changed where, you know, I have a guy who works for me uh, on this the day job team doing um, sales development for cloud security. And he... Mm. He's leaving New York to go to Chicago for like a month just to do it. And it kind of doesn't mm-hmm. matter where you work anymore because nobody... I mean, the world of coronavirus has destroyed location-based almost anything. So, mm-hmm. you know, here we are. In one way, it's very challenging. Obviously, it's rough for, for a lot of people. I mean, we're in a completely bizarre you know, economic situation. But on the other hand, there's almost this like strange opportunity where... Like, I know a lot of comedians who obviously you're out of work and this and it's rough it's really rough for them because you know i was even considering leaving the day job to do comedy full-time uh which is the dream you know that's like the dream and now i'm like so glad i did not do that (laughs) just before the (laughs) pandemic hit right i was like oh my god i'm so happy that i did not i didn't touch any of that uh you know but but at the same time like uh, there's a lot of comedians who I've spoken with who have who have strangely felt, you know, relieved where they're like, oh, I don't have to worry about the grind of doing stand up. Like I miss it, of course, but there's also this like strange pressure of like, how many minutes are you working out? How many gigs do you have coming up? What are, it's almost like there's a weird relief where it's like, I can't get any work done. So you know, now it's almost like being on an airplane where you're like, I can't yeah. make any phone calls, so I might as well do something else. That's the only place I've truly felt relaxed enough to watch a movie and really enjoy the movie is when I'm on an airplane. I'm like, I can't, I can't do anything else. So I might as well just enjoy this. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. You know what we're, uh, yeah, the, you know, this whole situation we've been in, you know, to your point, it's given, I think a lot of people like just a mental hall pass to just let it all go. Like, you know, the pressure of, of doing, you know, just what you were describing. And it's almost given us a hall pass just to chill out. And, you know, I think for a lot of people, you know, that's been a wonderful break uh, mentally, you know, notwithstanding the economic consequences of not doing oh, yeah, of not having, the work. Yeah. yeah. The work that you were doing. I was talking to a buddy of mine yesterday or texting rather, um, he, uh, he owns a, a, 
a nightclub in Seattle, and it's one of the city's oldest. It's called El Corazon. It, I mean, Hendrix played there, Nirvana played there, you know, back in the day. And well, that's pretty and cool. He, and you know, that, I mean, they had bands every night of the week, and they haven't been open since you know since early mid March. And you know, I can only imagine imagine how economically devastated you know that is for people you know like that in live live music, live theater, travel, you know, all that stuff. But um, hey, tell me. So I've I've read um, the Stoic Salesperson, which I loved. I devoured it. You know, it's it's a, it's a book you can literally read in an afternoon um, or a couple of flights. Um, but I um, uh, tell me about your new book that's coming up. Yeah, I um so first of all, thank you for reading it. You've said so many kind things about that book to me. Uh honestly, man, that's just it's nice to hear. Um I you know, I hope it was not uh redundant at any point. Uh I think I mentioned a couple I refer to the same stories a couple of times just to illustrate different points in it, but my mm. big fear was that you would end up going through that book and being like Ah, this again, <laughs> or, or whatever. No, um, in, no, in... it was it was good. Yeah, it was really good. No, the thing I liked about it. Well, first of all, I think any you know we can talk about books a little bit, and I want to hear about more about your new book. But you know, I think um, and it's you know, unlike your friend that you met at the party in New York. I have not written eight books, and I have never <laughs> been on the New York bestselling list for anything, um, New York Times. But, um, yeah. <laughs> but I, but my one book, and soon to be my second book. Um, you know, my my first book with Tom McMakin was surprisingly successful, kind of in a cult band, cult movie kind of way. And and I think that what made that that book resonate with people was it was it 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 took a different view it took a different perspective and the thing i liked about the stoic salesperson is um well a couple of things one it's very unique it's a very you know uh original point of view um you know which i think is important for for a book to gain traction and two mm. i I, I I think we can learn so much from history and from those that have gone before us. You know, the, the old saying that, you know, every generation of teenagers, you know, thinks they invent sex, drugs and rock and roll. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, every business person feels like, you know, they are inventing business. Well, no, it happens to have been going on for thousands of thousands years. Thousands of years, yeah. <laughs> and 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 commerce and 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 I love um you know I I um I don't have a great historical knowledge embarrassingly, but I do love history and um and and I thought that the book had a lot of great advice, you know, going back to, you know, ancient Greece and ancient Rome. Um so anyways, I enjoyed it. Yeah, I thought it was I appreciate that. That's va- that's those thank you for the kind words. Yeah, the 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 f- part of the fun I think in the book is was at least for me was I mean a lot of those lessons I used in the my job and so it was funny when I sat down to write it uh, that stuff just was available to me because I had needed those lessons myself I'm a rather I'm a rather reactive person um, mostly and a biggest uh, one of my biggest challenges in my life is just how do you remain how do you either remove emotion or remain unemotional uh, during t- you know sometimes extremely stressful or very emotional situations you know obviously if you're at a sales job you have a lot of investment a lot of vested interest in somebody deciding to move forward with your company but 
you know, you can very quickly ruin their desire to consider seriously working with your company if you inject that conversation with a whole bunch of emotion and they're going to feel controlled and manipulated if you're constantly attempting to try to just win them over nonstop. And, you know, what I find is the best thing to do is just do what is necessary and let the other person make their own decision. And I've just had a lot more success approaching things that way. And so the book kind of was came from that sense of uh, available, uh, you know, narrative that I, that I developed over kind of a career of doing sales. Um, and I mean, I comedy is really similar uh, to be honest, is that it's like, mm. it's not that it's not that remaining unemotional is important during stand up. I think a lot of your, you know, a lot of your tools come from your ability to emote and connect with your emotions. But it it's also like it, it just patience, being patient with jokes, being patient with the crowd, um, focusing on what you can control versus what you can't. All of these things, I think, are 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 important, and and in weird ways, they sort of complement each other. Uh, that is, comedy and and sales and uh, stoicism kind of are all different. You know, each one of these, you have an audience. In comedy, you have the the audience. In sales, you have an audience, which is people you're selling to. And, and weirdly, in stoicism, I think your audience is yourself. And you're you're almost having to have this like refl- you know this this two way relationship with your own self in conversation. So um, yeah, I, I mean I'll stop waxing poetic about the book, but I just really appreciate that you've taken a look at it and that you and that you enjoyed it. It means a lot to me. Um, yeah, the, it was a great the, book. The next one that's coming out here is uh, called The Power Bible, and that one was co-written with uh, a friend of mine who's a comedian and a lawyer named William Petit III. And he um, he's a comedian. I've known him for years. We met like five years ago in, in the Chicago stand-up comedy scene. And uh, him and I have been kind of all over the world doing comedy together. He's a, he's a rather unique guy. He's a, a lawyer. He's also a dating coach. He was a dating coach for a long time. And oh, it's wow. Like, yeah, have you ever seen the movie Hitch? No. Oh, man, it's an old Will Smith movie. Uh, okay, it's based, okay. It's, it's based on a real guy named David Weigand, who's a dating coach. And uh, actually, Bill used to be a coach for uh, the now best-selling author Mark Manson, who wrote the book The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. Uh, Bill worked with that guy when Mark was a dating coach years ago. And wow. so Bill was kind of a unique, uniquely in that world. And it's funny because it sounds, I just want to caution the audience because it sounds like if I was like, Oh yeah, a dating coach, it sounds like a really kind of like sleazy thing. Like who are his clients? Like, you know, right, frat, right. frat guys or like, right. You know, or whatever. But the truth is that it's, they're, Sometimes people, you know, be good. A good story that I like is there was a there was a guy who needed dating coaching services. He was in his fifties. He was uh, he had a he had a con- psychological condition called dystemia, which mm. means he can't recognize emotions in mm. other people. Mm. And as a result, he had never had a successful date in his life and didn't even know where to begin. He was a veterinarian mm. and he was super successful at being a veterinarian. Mm. But he was just like, look, I'm just lonely and I don't know what to do about it. So it's a real thing to help real people. I just want to toss that out there. Um, Yeah. It's maybe not exactly what you think. But anyway, Bill and I wrote that book. I know I'm 
going on and on. Uh, so, so what's now, the, what, what's the, yeah, what's, what, tell me about the, tell me about the power Bible. What's the, what's the gist of it? Yeah. So the concept is it's based on the science of, uh, neuro linguistic programming, which explores, uh, a topic called frame control. So frame control mm-hmm. is a topic within the field of neuro linguistic programming. And what it is, is a, what, what, NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming, is is a study of how language interacts with the brain. And specifically, frame control is how data is contextualized by the brain. And what we attempt to do through a whole bunch of experiences that him and I have had, either in law or in comedy or in sales, negotiation, dating, coaching, whatever we have, we try to explore and explain how can you have a control of the frame in a conversation that allows you to kind of get what you want out of these conversations. Um, mm. the, the tagline we have for the book is how to win conversations that matter. And cool. it's, it's interesting because it's not about winning every conversation and it's not about um, trying to coerce or manipulate other people. It's just about how do you enter a conversation in which something is at stake and you're able to understand what is happening and relevantly play your cards in a way that helps you get what you want, basically. Um, that's kind hmm. of the concept behind the book. And we've been, we, we go through all kinds of different things because that's a two-way conversation. The first, the first direction to that conversation is obviously outward in a negotiation with the person you're dealing with. But the second is inward. So when you're sitting at a table negotiating for a raise, for example, the first game you got to play is how do you convince yourself that you're in the right to sit down and ask for something like a raise from a boss? Mm -hmm. How are you ready to then defend that to the boss when they ask you for reasons why you should have the raise? So Mm -hmm. there's... There's, there's really two ways, there's two two movements that have to be done, and we focus a lot on the first movement, the inner conversation. And mm-hmm. once, that's, once that's aligned and you have that ready to go, the second one is a lot easier to take care of. Mm-hmm. Well, I can't wait to read it. It sounds awesome. And um, you say it'll be out in about a month? It's coming out the 17th of August. It's going to be released on Amazon. So cool. uh, I'll send you a, I'll send you a copy so you can take a look. Uh, I'll send you a, a PDF if you want to take a look at it. Yeah, yeah, I can't wait. Um, yeah, you know, there's something you mentioned that you know that I wrote about in my new book, um, and it, it, it made me think of it when you talked about you know sitting down with a boss, you know, for example, to to you know to ask for a raise. Um, and you know the inner the inner game that 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 makes you believe you have a right to that conversation and um, and the topic that I talk about in my new book, which is called How to Win Client Business, um, the uh, the idea came from a guy that I interviewed for the book, but but his quote was, "Where does your resume give you a right to a seat at the table?" Ooh, that's a that's a good question. And I loved, I loved that quote and it's become almost like a personal, you know, mantra for me, but it's like one of the things I, I, one of the things I do with my coaching clients, um, which are typically people in professional services, consultants, accountants, financial planners, and, 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 you know, people that are doing the selling, but they're also doing the doing, you know, um, Mm. and, um, and, 
one of the things that if you look at the consumer behavior of, of clients when they go through that decision-making journey of who they're going to hire to be their architect or consultant or web developer or you know, financial planner or whatever, um, one, of the, one of the challenges of that decision-making journey is it is really, really hard, I've come to learn, for them to know who the real experts are. Because, you know, like if you want to if you want to buy a Tesla, like you can go out if you had the money and you could drive a Model S and in 30 minutes know if that's the car you want or not. Right. Mm, mm. You could drop You could drop a hundred grand, but, you know, in 30 minutes, if you want that car or not, if you're hiring a financial planner or a a web developer or, you know, a, a sales coach. I mean, you just don't know. And, and I mean, it's, you don't know for a variety of reasons, one of which is there's information or knowledge asymmetry. Oh, if, yeah. if I were, if I were high, if I, let's say, let's say I was going through personal bankruptcy and I needed to hire a bankruptcy attorney. Well, shit, I don't know the first damn thing about bankruptcy. So how do I even know to ask the right questions to know if this bankruptcy attorney is any good? Right. Yep, yep. So, so that's, so that's one challenge. The other challenge is, um, you can't see inside someone's head. So you don't know how good they are at whatever their expertise is. And so anyway, one of the concepts of our first book, and it kind of flows on into the second book is, um, defining your expertise in such a way that it's it's credible and and believable, and then providing what are called um, credibility markers that other people, other prospective clients, can pick up on to be able to tell if to feel comfortable that you really are an expert. And people have a tough time with that because I tell people to shrink the pond. I'm like, you need to narrow your focus until you are mm. the obvious choice, right? Yeah. And you're the go-to expert for something. And and it's hard for people. And, and, and so that's why I've grabbed onto that, that, that quote from, you know, from this guy. I was like, okay, where does your resume give you a right to a seat at the table, um, whether it's for asking for a raise or sitting down with a prospective client, because in your body language and in the tone of your voice, I think it's conveyed if you are, you know, truly good at what you do, and if you're if you're if you're going to come across as credible. I there's just so much that you just said there that I want to like reply to and and talk about because I I really agree with this. It's because what I what you're saying is narrowing your pond is you're talking about finding a niche in which you are undoubtedly the expert. That like look, I, I this is a good. I mean, for me, I think this this comes from uh, a couple of different things. Like if somebody is interested. So I've done sales coaching and consulting at a at a few companies and mm-hmm, or for mm-hmm. a few teams and every time I do the reason that somebody has wanted to bring me on is cuz they're like, "Oh, I know you do a lot of stuff with improv. I've seen how successful teaching improv lessons and practices around a team is and you know, I checked out your book about sales and comedy and I know you I saw your comedy special and I know you're funny, so I figured like that would maybe be a good way to try to inject more personality into the conversations we're having over the phone. Like when it comes to sales and comedy, like I don't I don't think anybody 
I don't know of anybody else who's even in the game, you know, online. Right. If it was right. if it was just cold calls, they could go to Morgan J. Ingram or uh, the Bridge Group or Trish Bertuzzi or you know Jeff mm-hmm. Ho- Jeffrey Hoffman or any number of other people. But if they're like, how do I get a client to laugh? Then that's it's a different conversation. Yes. So, yes. I think that's what you mean by it. it's like finding a niche in which, I mean, people always say niche. But I feel like it isn't quite the right. I mean, narrowing your pond is probably a, a, a better way to think about it because it isn't like there isn't like a market for like comedy sales. Like if somebody if somebody approached the world like where's a market for comedy sales, there wouldn't be one. But if and if somebody even said what's the market position for comedy sales, but it's kind of more like look, I'm deciding to these are just two things that I do, and I'm creating content around them. And every once in a while, somebody runs into that content and they go, oh, this is exactly what this guy's good for. And yes. if, you do that, if you do that long enough, you develop a network and a reputation and people will reach out to you for that. Yeah, it's, it's, it, that's a great example. Um, you know, to your point to, about you, it's, it's that, yeah, if you, if, 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 if you were, if a, if a company were looking to go out to hire you know, someone to provide training for cold calling to your point, you know, there might be, you know, a dozen great, uh, you know, choices out there. But if you say, Hey, I want someone to help with sales training and have improv or stand up comedy experience, it's a pretty small pond. Right. And, and, and the, and the, and the, the um, consumer behavior piece of this, and this goes back, you know, there's research on this for 50 plus years. Um, if you are not top three in the client's mind when they begin down that client, uh, that decision making journey, you're probably not going to get the business. So if you're not top three at the beginning of the process, well, you need to shrink the pond until you are top three. Right. Mm. And and, you know, and there's lots of different ways of of shrinking the pond, you know, whether it be by functional expertise or target audience um, uh, or geography. If you're not the biggest stand up comedian in, you know, in New York, well, then, you know, shrink the pond. Okay, I'm the biggest, you know, I'm the best stand up comedian on, you know, 43rd and Broadway or whatever. You know, you just you have to shrink the pond until you're until you're top three in a person's mind, top of mind awareness. Um, and the only way to do that is by, to your point, narrowing your focus. But, um, but having a right to a seat at the table is, um, you know, I think is, is, is a good way, you know, to look at it. And, um, so yeah, I I love that. I think, um, it's interesting because Dave Chappelle once, uh, had a quote where he was like, I'm only trying to be the best, I'm only trying to be the best comedian who has the microphone that moment. And there's something about that where it's like, he just, (laughs) If you just follow the logic, you're like, if I'm just trying to be the best comedian I am when I'm doing comedy, you're if you if you if you just continue to do that, you're eventually going to be. I mean, there is no difference between being the best comedian in America and being the best comedian who's currently doing comedy at that moment, because Mm. in order to be the best comedian in America, you have to be the best comedian at the moment you're doing comedy. It just is, mm. it isn't possible. There's no situation in which Dave Chappelle is doing terribly while he has the microphone and yet he's the best comedian in America, you know? Right, right. Um, yeah. No, it's it's yeah, it's a great that's a great perspective. You know, there's um so so 
in my teaching work now at the university, I teach business strategy and mm-hmm. I've just been, a, I've been like, it's a topic I've been, you know, really interested in for most of my adult life. I've been, you know, studying it for almost 30 years. And, um, you know, it's interesting because for a long time, business strategy was about being the best. It was about winning, you know, being number one. And the reason for that was when when business strategy became a topic, the only the, the only go-to knowledge base they had was war strategy. Oh yeah, it was and, like Sun, Sun Tzu's The Art of yes, War. Yes, The Art of War v- and Von Clausewitz's Infantry Tactics. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, and 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 I think you referenced those maybe in your book and um, uh, the, the the stoic salesperson. But um, yeah. but anyway, that was a flawed metaphor because in business, business is not war in the sense that you know in war you have to annihilate your opponent yeah. and, and win. But in business, you don't. It's like yeah, we have Costco, but we've also got. Walmart, Walmart yeah, and, and Amazon, and Sam, you know? yeah, Sam's Club and, and Amazon, yeah. yeah, and 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 then furthermore, so th- so then they went from war to using sports as a metaphor for business, and 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 they went on, they went down that track for a while, and and then that was a flawed strategy or a flawed metaphor because in business, I mean, excuse me, in sports, there's once again there's a winner, and everybody's playing by the same rule book, right? Yep. If you're playing, you know, baseball or, you know, basketball or whatever, you know, you got – and there's a finite end to it. It's like, okay, it's 60 minutes. The game's over whatever. Well, that's not the way it is in business. I mean Amazon didn't play by the same rule book as Barnes & Noble, right? Oh, yeah. Yep. You know, it's like did, did, did Southwest Airlines play by the same rule book as, as, as Delta and American, you know? And so so that was a bad metaphor. And the, the – um, the, the metaphor that that I believe in, um, the analogy um, as it relates to business strategy and and you know going back to this idea of being the best, is um, was put forth by Michael Porter, who is you know a, a famous professor at Harvard Business School. But he said, you know what? He said the best analogy for business strategy is the performing arts. Mm. He said there is no best band. There is no best, you know, stand-up comedian. There is no best Broadway performer. There's just because it's like, well, how do you define best? And yeah. so, in my, in according my class, to what kind of, yeah, according to which yeah, rules and in what yeah. way, and yeah. So, so I'll give you. I'll just tell you a quick short story that I, I start every semester with on the first day of class. Um, I, you know, I come into class and um, and I ask the students. I say, you know, okay, I'm going to give you, you know, I'm going to give you three bands, and um, I want you guys to, you know, tell me who you think the best band is. Is it the Beatles, Led Zeppelin, or the Rolling Stones? Right. And um, and so you know that creates this lively debate, and everybody's, you know back and forth. And then finally, after kind of the debate winds down, there's this quiet kid in the back of the class and he raises his hand and he says, what do you mean by best? Yeah. And I say, precisely, right? 
So, you know, as it relates to stand up comedy or sales or being, you know, the best web developer or whatever, it's like, well, what the hell is best anyway? So it's like in performing arts, you do your magic, you do your art, you do your craft, and you find your tribe, right? You mm. find your following by, and it's like, you know, there's indie bands that have like a thousand followers, and then there's, you know, and then there's Dave Matthews and you too, right? And so, you know, the thing is just to be your authentic self and to find the people that resonate with you and to get get off of this whole notion of being the best because it's just a flawed, you know, uh, metaphor. And so that's one of the things I try to, you know, I try to convey, um, you know, not only to my students in a business context, but also to my, you know, consulting clients as well as like, what do you want to be the best at? You know, what, what, who do you want, who do you want to serve? And, and I think, you know, your example of like wanting to be the best sales coach that has a comedy, you know, angle to it is, is, you know, is your way of being the best at that and following, you know, following or finding your following. Um, so anyway, I mean, it's, um, I think it's, I, this, I really like what you're saying. This makes a lot of sense because I feel like, you know, Seth Godin talks about this a little bit, but there's a there's a sense in which it's like um, I th- actually I think the place I want to go with this is Ira Glass has a really good quote where Ira Glass talks about he said the the most challenging thing about deciding to go into a creative profession is your taste, your ability to create will not be as good as your taste is. And the, the most challenging thing you do is creating things to satisfy your own taste because you have a very specific taste, maybe. You've, you've developed a taste in something creatively, and it's very difficult to satisfy that when you're starting out. And I feel like that applies here only because it's like everybody, broadly speaking, is in some type of creative endeavor. So mm-hmm. you, you know, you're... I mean, the way that I would think about this, even at uh, when I first started managing um, years years ago um, at sales dev teams, was basically like, look, we're in the business of creating conversations with people who could eventually buy from us. That's mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. We're creating conversations with them. We're creating relationships with them, and it, it's strange because it's kind of like you're 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 being creative I mean everybody is being creative in something that they're doing so you're either writing jokes you're performing on stage you're creating new products you're creating new services you're creating interesting accounting practices to make sure that things are you know tracked monetarily in mm-hmm, a certain kind of way mm-hmm. you're you know you just this is what everybody is doing every day is you're just creating new and different ways to you're innovating in some way and so the difficulty is 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 sticking to something and creating in a way that satisfies your taste and then finding a market for that that creative product basically and mm. it's it's just odd because like that's the whole that's the whole job that's anything you're ever doing like I'm I mean I can tell you I'm a I'm a decent sales coach I can train people how to cold call and cold email and win over conversations and win over prospects and, mm-hmm. and develop you know, conversations that enter the pipeline and eventually result in business. I've done that at more than one, you know, company now. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. but what I'm really creatively more about, if somebody was really drilling down on it, is I'd be like, look, I'm not about really teaching people how to cold call and cold email and be SDRs. I'm, what I'm really good at is just getting people to be professionally friendly 
and win over others through persistence and you know being positive and being delightful and then creating relationships and those relationships you can eventually farm and resulting in business like mm-hmm. i'm not so in a weird way it's like i'm not a sales coach i'm just this other creative thing that happens to be you know have can teach skills that are focused in that space and it's mm-hmm. weird because like there's somewhere there's a product market fit and i guess the challenge of you know consulting or winning clients or marketing is just trying to figure out how to communicate that in a way that feels appropriate in the marketplace does that make sense mm-hmm. i don't know if i'm you know, it, it, spinning no, it, out it, in it, outer space here <laughs> that'd be all right too i um <laughs> i know i know exactly that podcast episode that you're referencing with ira glass because i listened to it and it was so damn good it was so i mean like I, I should go back and listen to it like at least, you know, like once every six months um, uh, where he's talking about, you know, getting started at something. And and to your point about like your 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 level of performance is never as good as your taste and you're going to suck at first and you're just going to keep going and you're going to get better. And um, and, and I can and I can totally relate to that. Um, but, um, yeah, you know, I, I think that, um, I think that that tension between, uh, what we aspire to be and where we are currently is while it might not be a hundred percent comfortable, I think that tension is natural, is necessary to like, pull us forward and to make us better, you know, whether it's in sales or stand up comedian or me in front of the classroom or, or whatever. It's like, you know, when I go into the classroom, I have such incredibly high standards and expectations for how good I'm going to be. And I'm never mm. that good. Like, you know, like I think of the <laughs> best speaker, I think of the best speaker I've ever saw or the best teacher I ever had. And, and I go in there, but you know what? If, if, if I'm like half as good as the best speaker or teacher I've ever seen, well, that might be better than 80% of the teachers these students have ever seen. And if that tension keeps pulling me forward towards my taste, my expectations, my personal standards, you know, you, you will get better. And, and, um, the thing I loved about the stoicism piece is that, it relate, relates back to a quote that I heard. It was by some famous popular musician now, and I can't remember who it was. I don't think it was John Legend, but it was it was someone in the last few years. I've, I heard this quote, but um, but he said something like, I can't control whether one of my songs becomes a hit or not. I have zero control over that. All I can do, the only thing I have control over is writing and playing that song. Yeah. And I'm going to do it the best that I can at that moment in time. And then I'm going to put it out there. And then once you put it out there, it is totally outside of your control. You don't know if people are going to love it, if critics critics are going to love it, if people are going to, you know, listen to it and buy your, you know, music and go to your shows. All you can control is is the writing of the song and the playing of the song at that moment in time. And I think that that stoicism element that you talk about in your book about how, um, 
you can only control, you know, the things that you can do. And you talk about these about, you know, being responsive and sending them the appropriate information and following up in, in the appropriate time and, you know, just being their guide in the journey. But you can't, you can't if you lock in on the outcome whether that is I'm only going to be satisfied and sa- and happy is if it's a hit song or if this client buys or if the audience like gives me a standing ovation you're really setting yourself up for you know for just a an unhappy and miserable life because it's it's outside of your control so many things and and I thought that to me that was that was one of the biggest takeaways from the book but it it, it also relates to you know coaching clients because um, you know whether it's your sales training or coaching or managing people it's like I could do the very best possible humanly possible best coaching ever of a you know of a client of mine and they still might not succeed oh yeah completely so right and so like if i get hung up on you know measuring my success totally by their success um all i can control is trying to be the very best you know that i can be and and realizing that half or two thirds of their success is going to come from them, not from me. Right. You know, and and I would say, and even worse, if you build your, if you build your whole strategy around those things that you can't control, it's like trying to build a castle in a swamp or something where it's like you, you, you just, you have no total control over what the foundation of, uh, you know, is going to be. So you, you know, if you do, if you do it that way, you're kind of you're almost inviting things to fall apart and have problems and be more difficult and and that's just the way that that tends to go in my experience like it's it, it, it and There's, it's not you know it's not that it's all bad i just i guess want to caution one thing which is like look if you build a coaching practice like at some level your clients and their well-being is what you're in a way responsible for that's what people are paying you for in a lot of ways but it's mm-hmm. like you can't you can't you you can't do it for them. You know, mm-hmm. you can't you you mm-hmm. can't you can't go in and actually just do the things for them. And you can and at some level you have to kind of surrender to the idea that you're just you you don't have a lot of power here um beyond, you know, whatever best ways you can communicate and <laughs> and there will be you know and this is why I think it's important which is like at some level, you know, people hire I mean I this is I don't know this is just the case like you know bill talks about this in the dating coaching world is that you know there are people who are unhappy and they they've told themselves a story in their life i'll bring it back to 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 consulting and coaching in a second but in the dating coaching world like you know there are people who are unhappy in their life and they're lonely and they're angry and the story they've told themselves is well i'm unacceptable as a person and in a weird way, that story like gives them relief because it absolves them of the responsibility of having to like do the work of meeting a, a partner in today's world, mm, which mm. W- which like is work. It's real work, you know. And some of them are so convinced and want that story to be so true that they will hire a dating coach in order to continue to fail so that they can tell themselves, well, see, even I hired a dating coach and even he couldn't help me. And like, it's just like, you know, so, so I've had these stories with, where I've talked with Bill about this, where it's like, you know, at some level, 
you got to fire your clients if they're bad clients and you can go, look, I, I can't help you anymore. You know, I'm, I'm no longer going to accept your money here because I can tell that nothing I'm going to do is going to help you. Right. Um, and I, I think that that's a, at some level, that's a, a movement that all professional people have to make with certain types of, of clients that they have. It's just, look, you're a, you're going to be a challenging client. I've done all I can for you. And I'm going to make the decision that the part of this conversation that I can control is whether or not I'm going to engage in it. And I, I think I'm just going to go ahead and disengage in it. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah, it's, yeah, it's totally true. You know, um, by taking a stoic perspective, meaning, you know, focusing on what you can control and, and trying to and, and trying not to focus on the process and, and not the outcome, it doesn't absolve, you know, it doesn't absolve us from our connection to the outcome. It's not like a complete, you yep. know, like, you know, hey, you know, I did my best. It didn't work out. No, it just, you know. If I can't connect with a client and help them get better, then I'm going to learn from that. And maybe the next client I have is going to, maybe I'm going to get a little bit better as a coach and I'm going to learn for, you know, I'm going to learn different maybe approaches for, you know, how to explain something to them or connect them or create, you know, exercises that will, you know, help them connect the dots a little bit. Um, uh, but I'm only who I am at the moment and I can only do what I'm capable of doing, you know, at, at, at this point in time. Um, but, uh, yeah, anyway, it's I a fascinating it's, conversation. Yeah. I was yeah. going to say, yeah, I think it, I think the, the, it, the, it's a realization that the, 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 you know, we live in a world in which people are expected. I don't know why this is the case, but like we just, you know, it's, it's somehow expected that everybody has complete command over everything that's happening in their lives. And this is why, like, you know, people uh, sometimes if, if something doesn't go right in their life, like they have to like, let me give you an example, a specific example. So I wanted so badly to get into the University of Michigan. I wanted really, really badly to get into it. And if I had applied um, when I was leaving high school, I, I might have gotten into it, especially if I had done early decision. I was basically a B plus student. Mm. Um president of a whole bunch of extracurricular activities. Mm. I was super social. Mm -hmm. I was mm -hmm. doing a lot of stand-up comedy. I, I had enough interesting things that the University of Michigan probably... I mean, I had AP classes I took and succeeded yeah, on and got yeah. college credit. The University of Michigan would have been interested in me. But I didn't, I didn't apply to there. And instead, I went to Eastern Michigan University. And then after mm. I got into Eastern Michigan, I decided, you know what? I actually really want to go to Michigan and tried to transfer and just could not do it. And the entire um, time I tried to get transferred over there was just, it was frustrating and it was a lot of work and I like never, never got it. And for the better part of the, my, the remainder of my college and even after college, I would really beat myself up and go like, oh man, I just never, just such bullshit. I just never got in. And I just really let this get to me. And mm. And I think that when I would tell that story to people sometimes, it wouldn't come up often, but when it did, I think I would tell that story to people. And the implicit argument that I was fighting in my head was, how could I have let this like happen to me? You know, like, look, it's just a big, crazy, chaotic world. And the fact that I didn't realize I wanted to go to that college until it was too late for me to go there is sad, but it's also not like... I don't have to like explain that to people. I don't have to like defend it or, or, um, or, uh, you know, somehow make 
sense of it. It's just a thing that happened, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. we we I think sometimes we live in a world in which we we're so expected to have every an explanation for everything that's happened. We're supposed to be in control of everything that's happening that I think there's a huge relief in just letting go of the fact that you're like, you know, the amount of energy that I spent on trying to explain why I didn't go to that college to myself. Um, I could have been doing a whole bunch of other interesting and unique things with that energy. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that's where kind of the freedom of that explanation and stoicism comes from. You know, in, instead of think about how many more people you could serve, you know, potentially as a as a consultant or coach by focusing on the people who you can help and you think you can help than by obsessing over why you couldn't help this one client of yours or something mm-hmm, like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, I've got a question for you. So when you were 18 and you were making that decision, you know, to go to Eastern Michigan um, or, or Mich- University of Michigan, um, why at, at the end of the day did you end up electing to go or apply to Eastern Michigan rather than the University of Michigan? Oh, I just didn't apply to college until it was too late, basically. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. It was, I was just didn't think about it. I just wasn't thinking about college. I was thinking about stand-up comedy. I was thinking about, you know, trying to, I was doing a lot of stand-up. I thought I was going to go on tour for doing stand-up. There was just a whole mm. bunch of stuff that was kind of going on. And until finally somebody was like, dude, you know, you're graduating in like three months. Like, have you, do you know, do you have any idea where you're going to school? <laughs> and I was like, oh shit, I should probably... Should probably have a plan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's so true. Well, yeah. The reason I ask is because um, you know I, I'm a parent now, and I've got you know I've got two kids that are college age, and it's so fascinating and and sometimes maddening as a parent, um, you know, to 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 watch your kids' decision making and you know to try to you know figure out how to you know, when and how should you try to influence that decision-making process? And, um, and my, my oldest, who's now 21, um, you know, went to college for a semester, hated it, you know, dropped out, you know, it took him a while. I kind of flailed around for a little while. And then he, you know, he found that, you know, he found his culinary school. I ended up going back to culinary school and he's, you know, he's a chef now, but, you know, as a dad watching this, you know, um, you kind of have to take a little bit of a stoic approach because, you know, it's, it's their life. It's not your life. It's, it's like, you know, you've, you've, you've got to let them go through the process and then, you know, bringing this back to your experience at, at, you know, doing the stand up comedy versus, you know, focusing on applying to University of Michigan, it's like we can't change the past, you know, we can't change the last 54 years of my life. And so you, you know, hopefully all of that material, all of those experiences becomes fodder for where we are now to help us shape our life into the life that we want to live. And, you know, this, you know, if, if, if you look back on it, you know, if you hadn't gone down that path of stand-up comedy, you probably wouldn't be who you are today. Right. No. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you hadn't gone down that route and you'd have gone to the university of Michigan, you know, who knows where you, where, what you would be doing now. And it may not be stand-up comedy. So it just all, you know, becomes, you know, a part of, uh, you know, part of where we are now. And, but, um, yeah, you know, I, I, 
I mentioned, you know, I'm on my like third or fourth career. Um, and so I honestly don't think that I could be doing what I'm doing now if I hadn't had those variety of experiences leading up to where I am now. Mm. Would I be, would I be more successful professionally if I had stuck with one path for 25 years? Arguably, I probably would be more successful if I had, you know, found my calling at 25 and pursued it for the next, you know, 25, 30 years. But I can't go back and change that. And I think that that tapestry of experiences gives me a point of view that allows me to do what I'm doing now that I wouldn't have had otherwise. And, um, you know, so, yeah, it uh, it's all it's all a part of life's journey, you know. Yeah, man. Hopefully, uh, well, I think it's interesting because you're. I'm looking forward to your next book, and I, I think, uh, you know, the, 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 you. I don't know if you would have if you'd be so insightful uh, into, you know, into all of this if if it weren't for the eclectic experiences you've had. So I feel like there's a, you know, having an appreciation for it. I mean, it's also just like I just aside from the pragmatic you know, implications of, of, you know, the choices you make in your life and, and how those things relate to the marketplace and how you, you know, the work you do professionally. It's like, you just, you don't really have another choice, I think, in terms of, I didn't expect to talk about any of this, by the way, so it's interesting that we've, we've like, wound through it, but it's like, you, you don't have, I, I don't think you have another choice in the sense that you you know what are your choices in life is it to be angry at the fact that you didn't make better decisions when you had the opportunity or is it to just appreciate that this is the less these are the lessons that you've learned and try to make the best of them i mean that's the whole that's the whole thing is like you know is is that's just those are your choices you can't you can be angry at what you didn't do or you can appreciate what you do and what you have and make the choices that you can with, with what you have, with what your life is, you know? I mean, this is part yeah. of the reason that like, you know, people, people who are, you know, overweight or out of shape find it so difficult to get back into shape is because it's like, you just, what do you do? At some point you got to accept that you're like, look, this is who I am. I'm a hundred pounds overweight and I just got to get back into it and start getting back into shape or something. It's easier to maintain something good while it's good. It's harder when you're trying to recognize that maybe you didn't do something the way you should have. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. We are, I, I don't know how we even got into it's, this is what I love about this podcast though, <laughs> is it's like, I can start talking with somebody and then like an hour later, I'm like, why are we, we, how, what are we talking about? Like it's right. Right. Well, you know, there's, there's one, one other topic I, I want to just touch on that's top of mind right now for me, um, you know, before we wrap up or move on. And that is this, this, this notion of liking what we're doing, um, because I've just written a chapter about this just in the last couple of weeks that's, you know, going in my, in my next book. And, and, and the topic is liking what we do is very important to our success at doing what we do. And it's hard to be really, really good. It's hard to be expert at something if we don't enjoy it and find, you know, like some innate satisfaction in doing it, even if we kind of suck at first, you know, and, Mm. um, and, and it's true, especially in the world that, that I'm in now where it's professional services and it's people that are selling the work, but they're also delivering the work. It's, which is a, a unique 
universe. It's unlike selling products. It's like, okay, I'm going to sell the client on me being the architect or the web developer, but then I've got also going to have to go do it. (laughs) Yeah. It's a weird, it's a weird world. But if you don't like doing, if you don't enjoy your work, you're not going to be very, you're not ultimately, you're not going to be, you know, successful or happy. And, you know, going back to my own, you know, life, you know, my, my career is that, um, I've always independent of money or other external, you know, indicators of success. I've always been drawn. I don't know where this came from, but I've always been drawn for finding something that I enjoyed and, and, and enjoying what I'm doing at the time. And if I wasn't enjoying what I was doing at the time, there was just this gnawing feeling that I've got to get to, you know, to, to something else. And, and, you know, it's just led to, you know, three or four things that I've done over the last, you know, 30 years and, and where I am now. But, <clears throat> One of the examples I use in the book is <clears throat> there's a there's a pitcher that pitched for the Atlanta Braves back in the 90s um, during the heyday of the 90s when they won the World Series. I happened to be living in Atlanta at the time, and um, Greg Maddox was their ace pitcher. They happened to have three amazing pitchers, Maddox, Glavin, and Smoltz, which was a huge – part of their success but Maddox, once upon Glavin a time and Bobby Smoltz Pop- sounds like it sounds like Maddox Glavin and Smoltz attorneys at law that's what that sounds like I to me. Know, right? <laughs> yes it does it does yeah it sounds like a New York law firm but um anyway uh but Greg Maddox was <laughs> Greg Maddox um is a hall of famer now and he's probably arguably top 10 best pitchers of all time but Bobby Cox was the was the manager, the coach manager of the Braves at the time. And someone asked him, you know, um, what makes Greg Maddox such a great pitcher? And he said, without hesitation, Greg loves baseball. Mm. He said, there are 200, he said, there are 200 pitchers right now in the Atlanta Braves minor league, you know, teams that have the same talent that Greg has but Greg loved baseball and he loved it so much that he was like, he was watching film at eight o'clock in the morning and he was doing drills and he was talking to his coaches. And it was just like, you know, at some level at whatever we do, we've got to have some sort of innate talent for that. If you're going to be an accountant, you probably need to be pretty good with numbers and like attention to detail. Right. Oh yeah. What's good what's going to make a great accountant is not their attention to detail or good with numbers. It's the ones that love accounting. And yeah. those are the ones that are going to be like the Greg Maddox, you know, hall of fame pitcher. And so I, I think, I think, you know, if I were to give any, you know, if I were to go back to my former self and have a beer with myself when I was you know 20 years old, I'd be like, dude, you just got to do stuff that you like doing. And that may change over time and that's okay. But if you're not enjoying what you're doing, you won't be very good at it at the end of the day, independent of whatever innate talent you have. So, um, yeah, I, I love that, man. I just think that's such a great, I feel like this is, this is just such a good, like, it's just such a good lesson to, to include. Honestly, is like, you just do the things that you like to do. And, you should, you know, hopefully you'll find a place in the marketplace. But I mean, this is part of what, you know, it's like the, um, this, this goes to, um, a little bit of what, uh, the, the comedian's dilemma that 
Seth Godin talks about is like you're just you're gonna the challenge is finding the niche where the things you enjoy doing line up with something in the marketplace. But like just pursuing yep, the yep. things that you like doing doesn't prevent you from, you know, if you, uh, Al Pacino, somebody asked him once, like, how did you become such a good actor? And he was like, I just took roles that I thought I didn't know if I had the acting chops to really do them. And so like, I, I and if it scared wow. me, I felt like I had to do it. And so he would just continue to yeah. stretch himself. And now he's like one of the best actors ever, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. No doubt. I love to go back and watch those early Pacino films from like the seventies. Yeah. Like Dog oh, Day my God. When it, yeah. Yes. When he's like 25 <laughs> years old or something, it's like, you can see the rough, like Pacino still in there. I mean, like today he's polished and, you know, so eloquent, but like you, you just, you could see that, that raw talent in, in, in there. Um, uh, let me ask you this question, um, Brendan, and that is, so, you know, kind of like comparing and contrasting sales with stand-up comedy. Um, I'm curious your take on this. And that is, so in stand-up comedy, do you find as a general rule that audiences are on your side when you when you stand up on stage and do they want to laugh and do they want you to be good or are they looking to like like this, prove it to me? I this is such a good question. Uh yeah, that let me ask you this. Why why are you asking me that question? Because comparing that to sales so if you are reaching out to – so here's my hypothesis, and I could be totally wrong. But um, <clears throat> I imagine that many people, if not the majority of people, when they go out to see live comedy or a, a live band, they, they want to like it. You know, yeah. I might – you know, like I want to laugh. I'm going out to have a good time, right? I want to be entertained. And I'm already on the comedian side before they before – they, you know, stand up on stage and, and I like, I'm probably, maybe I'm not normal or average, but like, I want to laugh. Right. Yeah. But, but if I'm on the receiving end of someone trying to sell me something, I'm totally the opposite. I'm like, I don't want to buy from you. I don't know who you are. I don't respect (laughs) you. I don't trust you. I, you know, you're, you're, you're somehow like gonna, you know, so my defenses are up which is totally the opposite of when I'm in a crowd at stand-up comedy. And I was just cu- – because you're one of the few people that's been in both of those roles, I was just curious, yeah. you know, your take on it. Yeah, I – this is – okay, so I just think this is such a great question because I think, like, this is exactly – this is – it's just so completely exactly what, <laughs> like, it's exactly what it is. This is, like, the number of times you go to a show – I mean, look, if the crowd is really warmed up, I mean, it's like getting a hot lead, like in stand-up, I mean, in, in, in sales. Like if somebody right. if somebody else talks to your prospect and they talk to your prospect about like, uh, oh yeah, here's what it can do and it's it's exciting, it's a great product. And then your prospect gets to you, they're like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm ready to hear about this. Like, please tell me all about it. Like do the whole spiel. I want to see the dog and pony show. That's like That's like what getting in front of a hot crowd is like. But yes, the majority of the time, the audience is kind of like, well, let's see what the fuck you got. Like, kind of like it's like a really it's like a really weird like like sometimes I come off stage and I'm like, I think that crowd wanted me to fail 
Like I yeah. think that crowd was way they were could not could not have liked it more if I had failed. You know, right. like they just right. really can't wait for some reason are just really excited to watch me take a huge dump on myself out there. And <laughs> I don't I don't know why that is, but some crowds come in wanting to fight like they want to see you do poorly and they're going to get really excited. I just think of like the worst stand up comedy show I ever went to was in Davenport, Iowa. It was so annoying. It was the worst. There was a group of people. It was the last stop I had on a tour. And the tour had opened great. Like, we had an amazing show in Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, it was, like, sold out. There was, like, hundreds of people. It was me and, you know, like, five comedian friends. And it was just such a blast. And uh, and then the rest of the shows were good. And then for some reason, we get to Davenport, and it's like nobody was going to show up. There was hardly anybody there. And the people who did show up were, like, trying to heckle, actively wanted us to fail. Like, there was a, a whole group of like 10 people who were like you know it'd be fun this is a free comedy show let's go out and just attack uh you know attack all of this <laughs> these comedians on stage and so like that's basically what happened and it was a total i remember there's a comedian who i'm really good friends with his name's Corey wood he's down in texas he's a wonderful comedian and he um super duper I've never, he's such a nice guy and I've never seen him get this angry before, but he was trying to finish a joke and it was a story and people just kept interrupting him with saying BS from the crowd. And he, I, it's the first time I've ever seen him almost yell at the crowd yeah. ever. And I was yeah. like, this is just, this is somehow, so for some reason, this is sometimes how it goes. Comedian, you know, people show up yeah. to the show and they're, they're, I mean, I think that mostly they want you to succeed but there's also this very strange moment where the crowd's like, if you're not going to wow me, then I want to see you crash and burn. Like, I want to get entertained one way or another. Like, either yeah. you're going to make me laugh and you're going to do really well, or I'm going to watch, I'm going to sit here and watch this plane barrel into the side of a mountain. Like, one of the two yeah. things are going to happen. So, do you think that, there's, do you think there are geographical you know, distinctions among the crowds? Like, is it different, you know, doing stand-up comedy in New York versus, you know, other places? Oh, completely. Yeah. And that changes, especially if you go to different countries, that the <laughs> the the sense of humor in different countries is, is just different. Really? And, yeah. Just very, very different. Uh, in, yeah. I mean, the sense of humor in the UK is different from America, and it's yeah, different from... Yeah. You know, well, you know, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah, you know, I've, I've certainly been to, you know, stand up comedy in New York and, and other places, but yeah, I mean, you know, maybe it's just different, you know, when I go out, um, when I go out to a comedy club, you know, I'm going out to laugh, you know, I, I'll even yeah. laugh at the bad comedians. I'm just like, shit, I'm going to have a few drinks and I'm going to laugh. And, yeah. and, you know, the same when I go out to see a live band, I'm like, I'm going out with my friends, I'm having a few beers, you know, maybe it's not, you know, like, you know, Bono up on stage or, you know, or, or whatever somebody you want to have a good time. Yeah. You're yeah, willing I'm to put like, the energy into having the good time. I want to have a good time. I, I can't imagine like showing up at a comedy club going, you know, I, you know, I don't want to laugh and, you know, I'm going to make sure I don't laugh. But, um, <laughs> another, another take on this is, okay. So, uh, sometimes, when you show up at uh, at a at a club to see a live band, and you're one of ten people there, you think to yourself, 
well, I must be a fucking idiot. You know, this band must really suck. <laughs> and, and I don't, yeah. you know, and so, so, so maybe then like my, my caveat emptor, you know, muscles are kicking in in my brain and I'm like, okay, you know, maybe, maybe this band does really suck. And, uh, but if I go to a band, <laughs> if I go to a, a show and it's like, you know, the place is packed and people are just like, you know, ready for things to start. Well, then you're like, you're like, well, Jesus, man, I'm really smart, man. I've like, picked up on this indie band that's like super hot and um so i wonder if it's similar in comedy like it's easier in a in a packed place than in a place with like 20 people oh completely laughter is laughter is contagious and it's way easier to do stand-up in front of a large crowd than a small crowd that like the smaller the crowd the harder it is because just different different people find different things funny and you're you're i mean think about it like this if it's about taste then the likelihood in which your taste and what's funny and what you're doing to try to create that taste on stage and satisfy that taste on stage is going to, there's just a a statistically higher number of chances for you to have audience members that also find that funny. So, so the, 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 the likelihood that you're going to run into people in the audience who also find you funny is greater. And if they laugh, other people will tend to laugh. And and that's just how it works. So if you have a larger audience of people, it typically is easier. Smaller audiences are just much harder to to get working. It's more specifically like I'm doing comedy to you. Like so if you like I need you to find this funny. And if you yes. and if you don't, then I suck. So <laughs> yes, yeah, no, I get it. You know, the other thing too is when you're famous, whatever whatever your craft is, whether you're an artist, an actor, a musician, or a comedian, if you're famous, you know, people show up already thinking that you're good, and maybe they laugh a little harder or clap a little louder because you're, you know, you're. Mick Jagger up on stage, whatever, you know, and if you show up and you're like not famous, then you don't come with that, like, you know, that pre-existing applause that's just ready to, you know, ready to happen. Ready to uh, fire up. Yeah. If you don't find, if you're not, if you're not rocking your ass off, it's not Mick Jagger's fault. It's your fault. Like that's, (laughs) that's almost like the, the implication. Yeah. Um, yeah. man, I, I gotta say, this has been such a great, great conversation, Doug. I, um, I appreciate yeah, it. I, um, I, we're running way, gone way over on time, but I know. it's such you'll a have good to, you'll one. You'll have to, you'll have to edit the hell out of this audio file for sure. Get it down, <laughs> get it down to size. But, um, anyway, well, thanks. Thanks for, uh, thanks for a great discussion. I, uh, I loved it and I can't wait for your new book, um, the power Bible. That's going to be, uh, on my, uh, bedside table soon. Yeah, I appreciate it, and uh, thank you for taking the time. Let's uh, we we should have you back on when your other book comes out. I'd love to. It'll be yeah. out in. Uh, I deliver it to Wiley in New York in about a month, and then um, and then it takes them a while to do their thing. But it'll be out in the early part of 2021, and I'd love to come back on. That would be uh, that would be fun. Yeah, would love that. Uh, we're looking forward to having you back on, Doug. Take care. All right, you as well. Bye. All right, bye. <laughs> Thank you.
Thanks so much for listening to the Madness Continues podcast. Once again, this is Brendan Lemon. If you liked what you listened to, please take a minute to like, to subscribe, to give us a rating. It really does mean a difference. I say us like there's more than one person doing this. Uh, it's just me, everybody. So every little bit of support you can lend would be really appreciated by me. If you want to share this podcast, it would really, really, really mean a lot to me. I hope you come back. I hope you listen and check out the other podcast I produce, Funny Planet, where we talk to different comedians from all over the world about what they're doing and how they are funny in their own cultures. You can learn a thing or two and you'll have a laugh too. Anyway, take care. Take it easy. We'll see you here next time.